Anybody to take your Bibles and open with me to Exodus chapter 10. We continue our sermon series through Exodus, looking this morning at Exodus 10, verses 21 through 29. If you haven't brought a Bible uh, with you this morning, there are uh, black pew Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Our passage is found on page 53 in those uh, pew Bibles. We come this morning to the ninth plague. This is a plague that comes, as we have seen in the past, the third of the three cycles of plagues, three plagues of three, and the third plague comes with no audience before Pharaoh, no warning. It simply comes on, and this is an ominous one, the plague of darkness. So let's look together at this passage, Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness In all the land of Egypt, three days, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind." But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Thus far, God's holy word. May he write its truth on our hearts this morning. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in your word this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People tell us, scholars, psychologists, whatever, tell us that earliest memories are significant. The things that we remember about our early childhood, the earliest memories are significant in some way or another. One of my earliest memories was of a time with our family when I, we were in the living room watching some television program. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but the next thing I remember was waking up in the dark yelling for my mother. Someone, evidently I had fallen asleep, someone had picked me up, carried me into the bedroom, and what they had forgotten to do was 
turn on my light, night light that I was still sleeping with. And so I was still afraid of the dark. It was unsettling. And I woke up screaming for uh, my mom or dad to come and rescue me from this dark. In movies, when we see the, the lights go out suddenly, you know that something bad is typically about uh, to happen. It's an ominous sign. And the Bible often contrasts light and darkness. In fact, our Bibles begin with darkness and they end with light. The very opening of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, begins in this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's how the Bible begins. In Genesis chapter 1, it ends in light. In Revelation chapter 22, it says there is no night there, and and we do not need a lamp or the sun because God is our light, the light for his people. No night, no darkness. It is everlasting light because God is there as our light. Now, of course, the unrepentant ones, the unbelievers, are cast, as Scripture says elsewhere, into outer eternal darkness That's how scripture begins in darkness and ends in light. So this plague of darkness that we see here in Exodus chapter 10, this ninth plague is an ominous plague. And I want to see a few things from this passage this morning. And the first is the judgment of darkness. The judgment of darkness. Darkness. Notice the the description of this darkness. It is deep. It is a paralyzing darkness, if you will. Verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Interesting language that God uses here, a darkness to be felt, a darkness that is dense, a darkness that is thick, a darkness in a sense that causes you not even to want to move for fear that you might run into something. In fact, Dr. Currid actually in his commentary suggests here that with this darkness they couldn't even light lights in their homes. That was not a possibility during this particular plague. It was completely dark, even in their homes. In verse 22, it's described as a a pitch darkness. Moses stretched out his hand, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. What we see here that's translated pitch darkness, Darkness in the ESV is really just two words, both meaning darkness. Possibly this is thick darkness, complete darkness. 
One of these two words for darkness often regularly is used in the context of God's judgment. And notice here, it is in all the land of Egypt for three days. And three days, many of us know from Scripture, has a sense of completeness, finality to it. Here indeed, in one sense, is the the final defeat of Egypt, and especially the final defeat of Egypt's gods, as we'll come back to in a little bit. No more chances. Only judgment remains now for Pharaoh and for the people of Egypt. Dr. Doug Stewart, one of my former professors at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, writes this in his commentary. He writes how the ancients dreaded darkness. He says, to appreciate fully this plague account, one must understand how ominously darkness threatened ancient people. We travel easily at night with the aid of various forms of electric lighting. They were virtually immobilized by the darkness of nighttime. We can be active at night because our homes and places of work can be cheaply illumined. They closed up their cities at night, barred their courtyard gates, and locked their house doors. People abroad in the nighttime were assumed to be criminals and typically, in fact, were. We feel relatively safe during the night, even away from home, with various means of communication to call for help readily available. They were at the mercy of common thieves and bandits when away from home at night. And unless well-armed and in large groups, they were easy prey for those who used the nighttime as cover for evil. They understood that the darkness was essentially chaotic, a kind of enemy of the safe and good. We may think of it as just another phase of the day. They considered confinement in darkness a grave punishment from God, even a sort of sometimes purposeful force and associated it with death. That's a description of an explicit, a wonderful description of what these ancient Egyptians were facing. We also see here, as we've seen in the the previous plagues, or at least I pointed out last week, that we have a, a, a reversal of the created order. God turns the world upside down. The God said on day one of creation, what? Let there be light. And now the world is plunged back into darkness. But perhaps more significantly for the ancient Egyptians, this was God's judgment on Egypt's gods. We've seen this in the past. Pretty much all of them have been judgments on the gods of Egypt. But now we've, we've come to the chief deity, the number one, the head Hancho God, and that is the sun god, Amun-Ra, the personification of the sun. Every morning, the Egyptians worshipped 
his victory over the forces of darkness, over the forces of chaos. And now, Yahweh, the one true God, shows his supremacy over this God. Dr. Curd again says that the rising sun was a symbol in ancient Egypt of life and of resurrection. But when it sank, it represented death and the underworld. The rising sun, life and resurrection, when it sank, representing death and the underworld. The Lord is supreme over all gods, is what we see here. Only one true God of all creation is exactly what the Lord is trying to show both Israel and Egypt. He's the one who created it. He's the one who rules over it. He can decreate it as he sees fit. He uses physical darkness as a judgment here. But you know, God also uses spiritual darkness as a judgment as well. Spiritual darkness as a judgment as well. The Apostle Paul actually says this in Romans chapter 1. He writes this, What can be known about God is plain to them, and that is to unbelievers, to everyone, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, that is everyone, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up, the Apostle Paul writes here, to spiritual darkness. He gave them up to idolatry. He gave the ancient Egyptians up to idolatry, which is exactly what they, they did. But even today, we just have a more sophisticated kind of idolatry. A more acceptable kind of idolatry. We're still idolaters in our world today. Idols are really simply a reflection of our values, of community values. Our modern idols are basically idols of the heart, and really at their root, they are the worship of self, the worship of, of self. Whatever we value is something that 
we see because it's something about us that we like, value in ourselves. Today's idolatry really is the the worship of self. Today's religion is all about self. What brings self-fulfillment? You've seen the commercials. They're all over. It's all appealing to, to you, to me, because you're worth it, because I'm worth it. It's about self. Even professing Christians can sometimes be promised your best life now. Not necessarily in the spiritual sense. Or what do we see today throughout the Christian church? Christians, Christian churchgoers really have become more consumers than worshipers. It's all about me. I'm the consumer in terms of my church going. But Paul condemns, in other words, is simply dressed up in religious garb. We fail to honor God in the right way and to give him thanks. What are your idols? The idols of the heart that you need God to dethrone from your heart this day. Secondly, in addition to the judgment of darkness, we see the heart of darkness. And we see that in verses 24 and following. The heart of darkness. He calls in Moses in verse 24 and he says, go and serve the Lord. But he says, your little ones may go, but only let your flocks and herds remain behind. Go, but not all of you can go. The flocks and herds might be, must remain behind. But Moses replies in 25 and 6, we must have sacrifices. Our livestock, verse 26, must also go. I almost titled this sermon from verse 26, no hoof left behind. Not one hoof will be left behind. All must go. What do we say, see here? Pharaoh is still maintaining control. Their land has been decimated by plagues. Now, total darkness, pitch darkness for three days. And he's still maintaining control. Or he thinks he's maintaining. Control. He's still trying to bargain with God. He's still seeing himself as equal with God. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. What we have here is a picture of Pharaoh's dark, dark heart. And of course, this is true of, of many. A darkened heart, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 of unbelievers, that they are darkened in their understanding. 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, a phrase that we've seen over and over again used with regard to Pharaoh. They are darkened in their understanding. As we read in the Proverbs, Proverbs 4, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. Or as Jesus himself said, men loved darkness instead of light, for their deeds are evil. We've gone through nine plagues now, and Pharaoh still will not let Israel go. He will not bow to Yahweh. He refuses to humble himself before the one true God. And really, this is the epitome of a dark heart. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I sit on the throne of my life. I won't bow to God or to his commands. It doesn't mean a dark heart, pure, evil. It means I'm I'm in control. I sit on the throne of my life. And we all know those who are basically saying that very thing, don't we? Might be siblings. Might be co-workers. It might be friends. For some of us, it may even be our children. We have a dark heart. I sit on the throne of my heart. Of course, we can try to witness. We need to pray. But ultimately, only God can change a dark and hardened heart. Pray for God's work in the lives of our friends and neighbors and co-workers and siblings and, and children. But here we see God hardening it, not softening it, hardening it. God is sovereign in life and God is sovereign in death. That leads us to number three, the response to darkness. The response to to darkness. It's interesting in this passage that Israel has light when the Egyptians do not. We see that in verse 23. All the people of Israel had light where they lived. Why? Because God was with them. God who is light was with them. But Moses, in a sense, also has God's light as he is before Pharaoh. He's not himself lit up. The text doesn't say that, but he has the light of God within him. And what we see here in God's light is Moses' bold and uncompromising stance in response to Pharaoh. Bold and uncompromising. We won't go without every person and every animal. They will not set aside God's commands for Pharaoh's demands. It's bold. It's uncompromising. 
He's light in darkness, we could say, even if Pharaoh doesn't recognize it. And you know, it is easy in a dark world today to compromise. It is easy to compromise to the world around us. We see it in church. We've seen it in a number of things recently. The Church of England recently declared that they won't do same-sex marriages, but they will bless same-sex civil unions. We've seen the news of Amy Grant hosting a same-sex wedding. We've seen in studies more than 50% of evangelical Christians believe that there are many ways to God when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes it's easy for us to compromise on what we give to God and what we hold back from God. We compromise when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Not Moses. For Moses, it is all or nothing. And notice how this passage ends in verses 28 or 28 and, and 29. It ends on a, a note of irony and possibly a bit of humor. When Pharaoh says to him, get away, take care never to see my face again. On the day you see my face, you will die. And Moses said, as you say, I will never see your face again. What's interesting here is it's pitch dark. They couldn't even see each other then. You'll never see it again, Moses. Moses was probably just fine with that. But Moses was light in Pharaoh's darkness. Pharaoh drives him out, drives out the light, and there's nothing but judgment remaining for Pharaoh. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We need to be uncompromising in preaching Christ. Standing for Christ, in making known the full truth of God's Word and what Scriptures teach. Uncompromising that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him, the only Savior, the only way to God. Uncompromising as the light of the world. Why? Because Jesus entered this world, this dark world, as light coming into darkness. He himself said in Matthew chapter 4, the very beginning of his ministry, the people who dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. And that is Jesus himself coming as light into darkness. He came to be light and yet we also see darkness at significant times. Darkness is prominent in his redemption. When Judas leaves 
to betray Jesus. At the end of John chapter 13, John tells us, in just this short little sentence, but significant, it was night. At Jesus' arrest in the garden, he says to the soldiers who came, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And at the cross, of course, while Jesus is there for three hours, I don't know if this is supposed to sync with the three days of darkness. With For three hours, what happens? It becomes dark while Jesus hangs on the cross. Why? Because all that is leading up to God's judgment on the Lord Jesus Christ. Entering the darkness, taking God's judgment on himself that we might live, and that we might have light forevermore. Praise be to God for his goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come in just a few moments now to the Lord's Supper this morning where we remember that Christ entered darkness so that we might have the light of God. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that you are a great and mighty God. We thank you that you are a loving God as well. A God of judgment, but a God of mercy. We thank you, O God, that though we have deserved your judgment, there is nothing good in us that deserves your grace and mercies. And yet you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, to die for us to to take our judgment on himself. And so, O God, we pray that you would help us this and every day to live for you. How we give you thanks and praise in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.